Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. The pharmaceutical company Merck says they've got a promising new pill to treat COVID. So today we're asking, what's the latest in treatments for COVID-19? Hi, Lenora. Welcome back to The Dose. Thanks for having me. We were going to focus this week's episode on how to gather safely with family during Thanksgiving, which of course is coming up. But you're in Alberta, and I thought that was beyond cruel. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so why don't you tell us how things are going right now in, from your standpoint in the province of Alberta during the fourth wave? Uh, I feel like in the health system, we're keeping our nose above water uh, by just a small margin. Um, the case counts remain very high, but maybe starting to turn around. There's a major disconnect between what we see going about in the world and what we see in the hospital with lots of activity and interactivity, it seems, um, and yet lots of unvaccinated people flooding into the hospital and then staying for quite a long time. So it's, it's a pretty tough time in healthcare, actually. Yeah, and, and I would think a time when new treatments would be all the more important. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, that's why everyone's paying attention to this press release. Um, if it was possible to reduce the risk of people progressing to require hospitalization, it definitely would make a difference when you're running case counts like this. So why don't I get you to say, hi, my name is, and tell us what you do. Sure. Hi, my name is Dr. Lenora Saxinger. I'm an infectious diseases specialist at the University of Alberta. So let's start with this new drug, Molnupiravir. Merck put out a press release last week. There's not a lot of detail, but break it down for us. How is this drug supposed to work? This drug is a nucleotide analog, which means that it, it actually takes quite a lot of it so that there's a lot of it around while the virus is trying to replicate itself. And the virus grabs the drug instead of its usual substrate to make RNA. And it introduces errors into its replication so that it actually stops replicating and you know, stops reproducing itself. So it, it basically is like a Trojan horse to the virus to make it mix up its own code. And, um, and, you know, we've used drugs like this for many different viral illnesses. A lot of antiviral drugs have that general mechanism. And this agent looked in the test tube to be quite effective against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. So the drug induces uh, the virus to make what some people have referred to as sloppy copies of itself that, that aren't particularly effective. So what impact does that have on patients with covid well, the idea is that instead of, you know, a cell getting infected with a virus and then making a whole bunch of new viruses that go and spread and infect new cells, that you basically short circuit that. So the virus is no longer able to make active copies of itself. Um, and so the infection basically kind of can't sustain itself. It, it teeters off. And that teetering off, as you've talked about, has resulted in some impressive impacts on outcomes uh, for patients. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, I mean, all I can tell you is what's in the press release, which I find so challenging because I have so many questions. But in the press release, they had given um, the medication, it was a trial of, you know, just under 800 patients, 770 odd patients. And um, they just reported a top line summary that there was 7.3% hospitalized versus 14.1% hospitalized in the treatment versus placebo group. And that interim analysis suggested that the drug was effective enough that they didn't want to continue for the entire trial because they thought the signal of effectiveness was strong enough to actually stop the trial. So since you've said you, you have lots of questions, what questions do you have about, about this drug at this particular time? I, I think that some of the, the questions are like just, you know, more about the outcomes, because I noticed that they just talked about um, an endpoint that was mostly, I believe, hospitalization. And so hospitalization as an outcome in an international kind of multinational trial always bothers me a bit, because in some places people might not be admitted, and in some places they might admit people with a lower threshold. And so it's not really a, a straight up kind of biologic endpoint that I think is as reliable. So I would like to know more about, you know, what was the uh, clinical status of people on hospitalization, how their oxygenation was, whether they required, um, you know, a lot of supplemental oxygen, because that's a little bit more verifiable, and, you know, other indices that are more clinically oriented. And a lot of the results seem to be um, driven by uh, Latin America. And, of course, there's also different variants circulating in different places. And so being able to compare the results in areas that have different variants circulating would also be kind of important to just understand if it's generalizable to our setting. Do we know anything about the side effects of the treatment? Not that I saw. In medications like this, in general, we're hoping that they're quite specific to the virus processes because you don't want to have a drug that can get introduced into your own replication machinery, if that makes sense. And by and large, most antivirals are pretty good in terms of targeting the virus enzyme processes without a lot of overlap, but that would be important to look at. And also the amount of medication given is quite large and looking at the side effect profile is also important. As you've mentioned, all we've had to look at right now is uh, a press release and, and Merck has to submit the uh, study data for peer review. And we've seen this movie a few times before during the pandemic. Other pharmaceutical companies have done the same thing. What do you think of that? I, I personally loathe it. Um, <laughs> it drives a big frenzy of interest, and then you can't actually answer any questions with it. And given that the drug is not yet available, um, the cynical part of me thinks of it as being like an advertising move um, that I don't think really you know, assists anyone who's trying to figure out what to do with COVID right now. They do have to put together a massive data package for you know, any regulators, the FDA, Health Canada, whomever. And then there's often some back and forth between you know, the regulators and the companies about additional information that's needed. So that the timeline from having the data submitted to actually being approved for emergency use could be quite quick. It could take a long time depending on what the data looks like. And so the teaser of the headline and the press release, I think, is really just not a helpful gambit. Is there a balance here between, you know, not showing, you know, that it's been peer reviewed at the present time, but but trying to engender hope? I think hope is good. Um, so, yes, hope is good. Um, but I mean, I, I guess to me, the big hope game changer was actually vaccination. Um, anything aside from that, you're never going to get the incremental benefit that you get from vaccination. 
So I think this is this is relevant to places where there's low vaccination for whatever reasons. I think that um, you know here right now, if this drug were available, we certainly you know if the results are actually consistent um, when fully examined, would definitely look at using that to try to reduce the risk of hospitalization, especially if there's any subgroups where it looks like it has the most effect. But I also think that you know having having all the enough information available that people can start kind of figuring out what place it might have is a little more useful than just the very top line summary. And you know, just looking at it again, they really did have high hospitalization rates in those cohorts. It's about three times higher than what we have right now here in the placebo group. So there's a lot of questions I think that we'd like to be able to work through with with more detail. So, Lenora, basically what you're saying, to break that down a bit, is that if the hospitalization rate in a particular place where this drug is being tested is artificially high, then that makes it easier to demonstrate a statistically significant reduction in hospitalization. Potentially. And also it goes to, I mean, like it is basically half, basically half the risk of hospitalization, which which is kind of impressive, but their uh, placebo group hospitalization rate was 14.1%. So automatically, I wonder about the generalizability. In a lot of places, it was more like 3 to 5%, or now with Delta, more like 4 to 6%. And so that is extraordinarily high, and it does make me wonder about the population a little bit. Well, since you're, you know, since we're both out on a limb, let's just go a little bit farther out on that <laughs> limb and 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 just ask the question of how important a drug like this could be during a fourth wave in a place like Alberta right now. It could stand to definitely take the edge off the stress the healthcare system is experiencing if it was deployed. Um, you know, in a, in a strategic way. One of the things that I'd like to know more about is the timing for a lot of medications that have an antiviral type effect, whether it's a monoclonal or a, or a drug, it really looks like getting it early is important. And so one of the things we're struggling with is that people are not having their infection identified until they're severely ill. So knowing a little bit more about the time window that you can use this drug in would make sense. And otherwise, we'd have to really start looking at how do we get people to get diagnosed earlier. And, and to your point, the company says that the drug shows promise when it's given to people within five days of the start of symptoms. Are you saying that in Alberta, it's taking longer than five days for people to get diagnosed? I think there's a lot of variability, but my experience on call last week is that a number of people basically presented without having a viral diagnosis, but dreadfully, dreadfully ill going right into the ICU. And so the horse is out of the barn for a lot of the people that we're seeing coming in right now. And so you'd have to have a really efficient system to make sure people are getting diagnosed quickly and triaged for treatment quickly, because, you know, half is half. That would be a boon right now. So um, we don't know anything about side effects. We've talked about the potential benefit. Then I, you know, there's the cost, and I'm, I'm guessing that this would be expensive in the early going. I would think so. You know, and one thing I did look up was some of the antiviral drugs are really actually hard to synthesize. Like there's a lot of chemical steps, like remdesivir is like that, and it was made here in Edmonton, and, and it was like something like 27 steps to make it. This drug, they did actually manage to simplify the manufacture of it um, earlier this year so that it was fewer steps and hopefully that will also make it easier to make in large quantities and also make it a little less expensive. But that's an open question. Well, let's talk about a treatment for which we do have more details, uh, that monoclonal antibody cocktail uh, that comes from Regeneron that, that, of course, people were talking about not in the summer of 2021, but in the summer of 2020. Let's not forget about that. Uh, how effective is that treatment? That therapy actually is... I mean, it, it 
clearly show signal of benefit when used in people who have risk factors for severe COVID. And as we were just saying, it's one of the ones that's somewhat time sensitive. So in the registration trials of these antiviral monoclonals, most patients were tested and treated within three to five days. And it, it has to be given IV. There's some emerging data on giving it, you know, by like sub-Q injection rather than IV. And so now you're looking at, well, how do we identify the people who are most at risk of progression to give COVID positive patients an IV medication when the entire healthcare system is getting crushed? And so it becomes another practical issue that's a bit of a challenge. And also the supply is not super large. Like these are complex um, therapies, the monoclonal antibodies. And so you really do want to try to figure out the best way to use the supply that's available. To that point, uh, I understand that they're rationing uh, access to the treatment in the United States to those who are unvaccinated because they're looking for biggest bang for the buck. That's right. There's also some data that shows kind of a similar degree of uh, risk reduction, but instead of reducing your need for hospitalization by an absolute kind of six or seven percent, it reduces the likelihood of death by an absolute six or seven percent in hospitalized patients who don't yet have their own antibodies. And so that's the other place that it is being looked at for use. And that's where we're looking at it here in Alberta as well. What about remdesivir? Remdesivir is interesting. So remdesivir is an antiviral, obviously, and you know many countries have used it as standard of care. But the initial data from the trials really showed kind of a, a reduction of the duration of illness and maybe a bit of a reduction of the severity of illness in people hospitalized. And there was always a suspicion that it might work better if given early, but not a strong data signal on that. And then really large trials like the recovery trial um, in the UK did not show really a mortality benefit at all with the use of remdesivir. And so the World Health Organization, you know, Health Canada, um, Public Health Agency, they basically said there's not enough evidence to suggest this for routine use yet. But everyone was waiting for the outcome of another trial, which I believe is finished, you know, and is working on the data, but is not yet reported. It, it would have been clearer by now if it was a huge signal of benefit, but even a modest signal of benefit um, is something that's worth looking at. It's a reminder that we have to keep following the science, that what seemed like a really good idea early on, further studies might show that it's not as effective as people thought it was. Yeah, I think it's important to remain light on your feet in terms of COVID, <laughs> COVID therapies, because we really do see um, early promising results that completely fizzle. We see, um, you know, treatments that actually most people kind of discounted, like the use of dexamethasone that turn out to actually be really beneficial. So I think it's just very, very important to keep on trying to work on improving the evidence base that we're treating people with. Dexamethasone, of course, is a corticosteroid. Uh, what about inhaled corticosteroids? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. I mean, budesonide at a quite a high dose is a steroid that's been used in COVID-19 infection. There's a couple of trials. They're not very large. One of them was much more positive than the other suggesting, you know, significant benefit in terms of progression of infection in outpatients. The data is, isn't really strong enough to say we should be giving everyone budesonide, but it's definitely strong enough to say that we should continue evaluating budesonide. And in some places have actually kind of put it on a maybe list. Lenore, are there any other treatments that have caught your eye that maybe the public doesn't know as much about? There's a lot of stuff um, in the works, and some of it may or may not float to the top. One thing that sort of was really of a lot of interest for a while that kind of simmered down in terms of attention is colchicine, because there was that one large trial from Montreal 
that suggested it might benefit people, but it has a quite a difficult side effect profile. And it was a fairly like 1.4% hospitalization reduction for that very, very high um, rate of side effects, like one in eight people had diarrhea. So I think that I would wait more trials on colchicine. The only other thing that strikes me is um, fluvoxamine, a common antidepressant, which is thought to help reduce kind of the cytokine response in the viral infection. And it showed some early promising results in a fairly small trial. But I think that that is still too preliminary as well. I think, I mean, the take-home message is that if you are unvaccinated or your person who does not have an adequate immune response to be able to rely on your vaccination, that there probably will be some different options for treatment of COVID-19 as an outpatient to reduce your risk of getting severely ill, but it's really changing rapidly right now. And first thing would be if you're not already immune, become immune by getting vaccinated. And then the second thing is if for some reason that has not taken place, getting tested early might be a benefit in terms of, you know, giving us full access to a range of possibilities, either in a trial or in proven treatments as we get more information. So there will be lots of options. One option that there won't be, and I hesitate to have to spend even 10 seconds or five seconds talking about this, but I feel like we have to because part of our job is explaining things to to people, you know, to, to our many avid subscribers, and, and that is ivermectin. Um, Did you I, hear me I, sigh in the background? <laughs> I heard the sigh in the background, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry we have to even talk about it again, but but just, just to slam this door shut, what does the science uh, say on the use of ivermectin in the treatment of COVID? So right now, based on the better quality clinical trials, there is insufficient evidence to use ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19. You know, people were just throwing stuff at COVID, hoping something would stick. And ivermectin had some lab-based data that looked promising enough that some trials were done. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of trials have been done in COVID that are not high quality trials, very biased. Um, A lot of observational data where people got multiple other medications at the same time, including steroids, so that you can't really make conclusions from a lot of the data that is out there. But lots of studies with individually positive sounding results have been in the public domain. And even some you know, meta-analyses of all of those studies that are very biased with positive results have shown unsurprisingly positive results. But an epi teacher once told me it's like building a castle on a swamp. Meta-analysis of poor data is still poor data. And uh, a good quality analysis, which I really like to point people to from the Cochrane collaboration, really breaks it down nicely in terms of the bias and the better quality studies and basically says, don't use it. Although, you know, there's a couple of good well-designed trials still ongoing. Uh, They might be wrapping up soon. I will keep an open mind to anything that has an adequate database. But at the moment, I would definitely say this is not standard of care. It should not be used for COVID-19. And that a lot of the the fear around it really is driven, I think, by social media. I want to close by giving you another opportunity to, to say something that you mentioned in passing, and that is the efficacy of vaccination compared to all these other treatments that we've been talking about. You know, the thing that strikes me is that a lot of people um, will look at these treatments and say, well, that really, really helps. But when you look at, you know, the actual value, it might reduce death in a group of patients by 2%. It might reduce hospitalizations by 7%. Vaccination actually reduces those outcomes by over 90% across the board. 
So the magnitude of benefit of you being able to make your own antibodies, not get some synthesized antibodies, and for you to be able to control the viral replication yourself is just huge. And um, at the moment, we have way more data and experience with vaccination than we do with any of these treatments. I think it seems pretty clear to me that prevention and vaccination are by far the preferred thing to do here. And, you know, we have to keep on chipping away at messaging that in a way that people can accept because vaccination is no longer experimental. It's well-proven and we have huge amounts of experience with it compared to some of these drugs, which we're talking about, where we only have data on a few hundred people. Dr. Lenora Saxinger, thank you so much for explaining the ins and outs of these new treatments and, and other treatments that have been around for a while that people might've forgotten about. It was my pleasure talking with you again. Bye-bye now. Dr. Lenora Saxinger is an infectious diseases specialist at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Here's your dose of smart advice. The pharmaceutical company Merck says its new drug treatment, Molnupiravir, makes COVID infections peter out by getting the virus to make ineffective copies of itself. The company says that in a clinical trial, the drug was shown to reduce hospitalization and death by 50%. If true, that would be very helpful during an outbreak like the fourth wave but there are issues. The study Merck mentioned in its press release needs to be peer-reviewed by scientists who are not connected to the research. Until then, there are lots of unanswered questions about the drug. We don't know the drug's side effects. Because the treatment must be given in the first five days of COVID symptoms, it's essential to test and diagnose patients for COVID fast. Other treatments found to be helpful to some extent include dexamethasone, remdesivir, and monoclonal antibodies. The antidepressant fluvoxamine may help reduce the inflammation associated with COVID infections. Ivermectin has so far not been shown to provide any benefit to patients with COVID. The drug treatments we've been talking about add to the toolkit doctors have to treat the infection. But by far, the most effective treatment that saves lives and prevents hospitalizations are COVID vaccines. If you have questions you'd like answered or topics you'd like discussed, tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC Podcasts or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us five stars so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Rachel Sanders. Technical support was by Lauda Antonelli. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.